hope you'll take your Bible or find one around you and open to Mark chapter 12. We've been working our way for some time now through the Gospel of Mark, and we will continue that journey this morning. As you go to Mark 12, I want to remind you of an account from the Old Testament. If you know the scriptures, then you know that David is considered by most to be the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. There was no king before him or after him that had the impact on the nation that he had. And yet, David didn't come to the throne in a traditional way. Maybe you remember the way he was anointed to be the future king of Israel. It wasn't conventional. His dad wasn't a king. He didn't come from a line of kings. When David was growing up, the king of Israel was King Saul. And while he had some successes as a king, his heart wasn't inclined towards God. God wasn't pleased with him. So there came a point when God sent a prophet, a man named Samuel, to go and to tell Saul that God was going to take the kingdom away from him and to give it to someone else. It's a tough assignment, isn't it? Hey, won't you go tell the king? He's about to lose his kingdom. It's a tough calling, but Samuel did it. He took the message that God gave him. He went to Saul and told him that God had rejected him as the king of Israel. Actually, let me give you the exact words. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 28. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Hard words spoken to a powerful man. And that was only part of the way that God planned to use Samuel. See, not only did he give the pink slip to Saul, but he had the chance to go and to anoint the future king. God sent Samuel to Bethlehem. I love that note. The king coming from Bethlehem. He sent Samuel to Bethlehem to find a man named Jesse. Told him that one of Jesse's sons would be the next king. So he goes, he finds Jesse, and Jesse starts to introduce him to his sons, and Samuel starts to size them up. Now think for a second, what would you be looking for? You've got some brothers standing in front of you. One of them is going to be king. What would you be noticing? What does a king look like? Well, naturally, Samuel had some preconceptions. Maybe he had Saul in his mind, this big, tall, strong leader. And as Samuel looked at the lot, there was one that stood out from the rest. His name was Eliab. He looked the part and saw, Samuel thought, surely this must be him. But of course, it wasn't Samuel's job to choose the king. God was going to appoint the king. And God said to Samuel, I'll read it for you. Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord said to him, Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. I've rejected Eliab. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. It's one of those verses, one of those moments when we learn so much about God and about the nature of his kingdom. About how different God is from us. And how different God's kingdom is from 
what we're used to. Samuel sold Eliab, someone who looked like a king. That's how we operate so much, isn't it? He looks the part. Always in his place at church, carrying that nice goatskin Bible. We're drawn to outward appearances. We're prone to judgment based on what we can see. But God's economy is different, isn't it? We see that in this interaction. If you know how the story goes, you'll know that Samuel brought seven of his sons before David or before Samuel and oh, spoiler alert. He brought the seven sons, but none of them were king. But there was one other. A short, scrawny, the youngest of them, he was out tending the sheep. His name was David. He didn't look like a king, but later we would learn he was a man after God's own heart. The Lord doesn't see the way we see. We look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And this morning as we come to Mark chapter 12, we come to a passage that makes this clear. God's economy is different than our economy. God weighs things differently than we do. While we're inclined to look at the outward, God looks at the heart. See, our love of God, your service of God, isn't weighed based on what other people can see. God weighs the posture of your heart. That's where we're headed. But first, it has been a little while. It's been, I think, it's four weeks removed from Mark. So let me remind you where we are. It's the last week of the life of Jesus before the cross. It's Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on what sources you look at. It's the middle of that week. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows the cross is just days away. But he isn't trying to escape. He's not trying to distance himself from those who want to silence him. And you'll see this morning, he's not softening his message either. No, he's there in the temple court with the people, teaching them and saying hard things. This is the last public teaching of Jesus to the the crowds that Mark records. As I was thinking about that, I wondered, if we didn't have the scripture, if we didn't know the story, if I just told you, three days before the cross, Jesus is going to address a crowd. What's the topic? What would he want people to know? Well, what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus zeroes in on the heart with which we serve. He wants people to know that God doesn't look on outward appearances. He looks at the heart. With that in mind, Mark chapter 12. Hope you'll follow along. We're going to be in verses 38 to 44. Hear the word of God. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. 
And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. See, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything, all she had to live on. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Which means the words that God spoke 2,000 years ago are still relevant for us today. Pray that God will add his blessing to the reading and teaching of his word. So we read the text, and maybe you had the thought I had this week. Is this one sermon or two? It took me until about Wednesday to figure that out. The reality is these are two accounts that can stand on their own. But Mark puts them together, and Luke puts them together. And the more time I spend with them, the more I recognize that they contrast one another. And so perhaps there's the most to be learned from this part of Mark when we see them side by side and the contrast that's offered. See, the first is a warning to hypocritical hearts, while the second is an example of a sincere heart. You recognize that contrast between the scribes and the widow? The first, a warning from Christ, speaks to what God hates. The second, an observation of the kind of heart that God desires. Or if you want something memorable, I was a little bit proud of this. The first is about those who will receive God's condemnation. And the second about those who will receive God's commendation. We're going to look at both of them. And here's my encouragement to you. Would you not just look towards the scribes or look towards the widow, but would you allow yourself to look towards your own heart? Consider where God may be calling you to repentance or to change or to greater service. Said so that first section, the one about the scribes, it's a warning. We see that in verse 38. Jesus says, beware. And any time Jesus offers a warning, wherever it's found, we should be listening. However, I, man, I was thinking this week, this is the week of the cross. And this is what Jesus chooses at this moment to warn people about. Man, that seems significant. It's a warning, and it's a warning about a specific group of people, a kind of person. Beware of the scribes. Now, if you've been around the Bible, you've read the Bible, if you've been with us through our study of Mark, then you know this. There's not much kind said about the scribes. This isn't the only time that Christ has spoken against them. However, it's important for us to remember that the people who lived during this time didn't have necessarily a negative perspective of the scribes like we, we come with a bias, don't we? The scribes were the teachers of the scriptures. They were religious leaders. They were held out as examples to be followed. So perhaps it would be a surprise to some 
when Jesus says, beware of your teachers. And he goes on to warn them that the way their scribes are living is deadly. He lists some of their characteristics. Verse 38, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace. We could spend a long time on each of the things that he says about the scribes, but suffice it to say, the scribes had special clothes they wore that set them apart from everyone else. History tells us they wore these long white robes that on each corner of the robe had tassels. The common people wore a variety of colors. White stood out. When a scribe was in a crowd, they stood out and stood apart. And this had always been the case. So when we hear this, oh, look at these guys walking around in their long robes and their tassels, we think, that's odd. That's presumptuous. But this was just life, right? The scribes wear robes. And the scribes are treated with honor. When they walk through the marketplace, people stand up, they stand still. When they speak to a scribe, they greet them with a, a title of respect. When they go to a party, they're the honored guest, given the best seat, given the best food, given the best drink. When they're in the synagogue, they get a chair. It's a big deal. Everyone sits on the floor. But along the walls and along the, the back, there's benches. If you're a new scribe, you might sit on the corner on the bench in the back. If you've been around for a while, you might be sitting over here. If you're a long-time trusted scribe, you might be sitting right over here. Everyone else is on the floor. And that's the way it was. That's the way it always been. Jesus isn't describing anything foreign or new. or But he issues a warning. It's a warning because Jesus knows that for many of the scribes, these traditions were matters of pride. Arrogance. In many cases, these men are more concerned about the outward appearance. And in fact, what we're going to see is that their hearts were wicked. And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows your heart also, by the way. Jesus knows that these aren't humble, wise teachers being shown appropriate honor. But they're proud, self-centered men demanding praise. When it was that true of every scribe? Probably not. But Jesus does speak in this general sense, and so I'll speak the same way. Verse 38 and 39, he says things that everyone knows. They wore robes. They were dressed with the honor. They sat in special places. But then there is this twist in verse 40, and he says something that may have been a surprise to some. Verse 40 they devour widows' houses. That's vivid language, isn't it? Someone eating up or consuming the house of someone else? Jesus isn't pulling any punches. He's calling these men out on serious charges. Probably helpful for some context at this point. See, being a scribe wasn't a paid position, at least not by the synagogue or by any formal institution. But the scribes were teachers, and most of them made their living by gathering those whom they taught the scriptures to. And it was customary and even appropriate for those whom they taught 
to support those who were teaching. It wasn't wrong. In fact, the scriptures teach that those who serve the people of God are worthy of compensation for their work. It was true then, and the New Testament affirms that it's true in the the church as well. But what Jesus is pointing out is that these are not good men being honored for their humble service, but these are men who are taking advantage. He's accusing them of serious things, of exploitation, of abuse. These were men who were using their power to take advantage of others, using their position not to serve, but to serve themselves. And those who were the most vulnerable were the greatest victims. You know, there's some themes that we find in every part of the scriptures. One of those themes that runs from the law through the prophets, through the gospels, through the epistles, is that God cares deeply for the weak and the vulnerable. In every part of Scripture, you can find commands from God calling His people to care for the weak and those who can't care for themselves. The most vulnerable, when we see the list, it generally includes widows, orphans. The law made special provisions to care for the women who would lose their husbands. Special provision for children who would lose their parents. God took seriously and takes seriously the care of widows and orphans. In fact, in Psalm 68, God calls himself the father to the fatherless and the protector of widows. It's part of his character. It's a theme that continues in the New Testament. Probably the most blatant examples in the book of James we're told James says this religion that is pure and undefiled is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction this is how God describes pure religion caring for those who are unable or less able to care for themselves here's the point God is compassionate and takes special note of those who are weak and vulnerable. And we should keep that in mind as we hear the charge that Jesus makes. He says they're devouring the widow's houses. As we consider the love of God for the widow, and we see the quote-unquote men of God taking advantage of those very ladies. These were women who may have been lonely, who needed help and comfort. And the scribes offered help and comfort, but at a price. He's describing men of power and position, praying and sponging off those who could easily be taken advantage of. They were extortioners. And they would have these long prayers that sounded beautiful. And perhaps they would go and pray for a widow. And she would be comforted and she would be helped. And then she would be taken advantage of. should make our stomachs turn. Something that grieves the heart of God, and we see here it invites the judgment of God. We see is that after Jesus describes the pride and hypocrisy and the abusive acts of the scribes, he says this, they will receive the greater condemnation. That's a, a sentence that should grab our attention. Not only will they be judged or condemned, they will receive a greater condemnation. These are men who had gained honor and respect in their communities. 
And they had been able to have their way with the weak and the poor. But God wasn't fooled. He's not fooled by appearances. He's not fooled by flowery speech. He's not fooled by church attendance. He's not fooled by all the things you do to try to create an outward performance. He sees the heart. Jesus makes it clear that those who sin against the weak will be severely judged. It's a passage about hypocrisy. And I think it should do a couple of things in us, and you could probably add to the list. Let me share just a couple of things that came to mind for me as I considered the warning that Jesus makes against the scribes. First, let's be thankful that we have a God who cares for the weak and the vulnerable. He cares about us. Like I said, it's the theme that runs throughout the scriptures, God's compassion. And brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, we should be among the first to do whatever we can to serve those who are in positions of need and weakness. We should have hearts that are sensitive to the widow and to the orphan, to anyone else who's unable to care for themselves. And we should have eyes open, ready to protect those who could be taken advantage of. It's a secondary point in the text, to be, to be sure. But something we probably don't talk about often enough. And let's not rush past this, that this particular warning is about the Ones with religious position being those who are taking advantage. God forbid I ever use any position he gives me to mislead or to take advantage. Text should encourage us to care for those in need. But the main point of this passage, this first part of the passage, is the hypocrisy of the scribes, their proud hearts. And it should cause us to consider our own hearts. Because I've seen you guys around. You're not wearing long robes, tassels. When you come to a party at my house, you're getting a seat wherever you can find one. But we are all guilty at times of putting on religion, aren't we? Can I remind you that you may fool us all, but God sees your heart. The Lord's opinion is the only one that matters. Brian read earlier for us from Matthew chapter 6. Let me, I want you to hear it again with this context in mind. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret, who knows the heart, he will reward you. The longer I've been a Christian, the more time I've spent in the scriptures the more it seems like so much of what we're called to and what we're called away from, and all, so much of it stems from pride and the lack of humility. And the Bible is clear. God opposes the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. Friends, I know most of you don't look like scribes, but I hope you'll consider your heart because you might have scribe-like sins, scribe-like tendencies, pride in your own religious practice or the desire for the praise of men more than the praise of God. In this first part of our passage, we see an example of the kind of heart God despises. Those who will be subject to condemnation. Then we have the other part, and you're thinking, this was two sermons. You should be done by now. There's another part, and we're going to be helped by seeing the contrast, I think. They go together. In the second one, we see the what true devotion to God looks like, starting in verse 41. And let's set the scene again. See, Jesus was teaching to the crowds, and it seems that the crowds have gone away. And now Jesus goes, and he takes a seat on a bench in a portion of the temple where offerings were brought. And I read that in that part of the temple, there was 13 receptacles, shofar-shaped. So it's big at the top, and it gets smaller as it goes. And people would come, and they would put their offerings into these. And they get smaller because you can't get your hand down, down in there. I don't know if that's true, but it made sense to me. But they would go and they put these offerings in, and Jesus sits on a bench and he's seeing people. It's, it's Passover week, so there's lots of people in the temple. Lots of people bringing offerings. And we're told here in verse 41 or 42 that there's rich people bringing in there, putting in large offerings. Side note the art of collecting offerings was appropriate. This was established by God that people would come and would give offerings for the support of the temple. It's how it was then, and that's how it is now, that God has called his people to support the work of the ministry. Jesus is sitting there in the temple. People are coming with their offerings. The rich are putting in large sums of money, but then Jesus takes notice of one woman. By her appearance, he knows she's a widow. By what he sees, she's visibly poor. She goes to the offering box and doesn't put in a large sum, but drops in two small copper coins. And not coins that are worth a lot, but coins that are worth almost nothing. I read several things about the value of the coins, and one person said, and it's worth six minutes of a day's work at an average daily wage. I don't know if that's completely accurate, but everything I said said this is worth almost nothing. This is a very, very small amount. She drops in these two coins, surrounded by people making much more sizable offerings. And I don't think she was trying to impress anyone. Probably hoped that she wouldn't be noticed at all. But Jesus saw her. Hear that again. Jesus saw her. And your acts of service might not be large, but Jesus sees. He saw her and he saw an opportunity to teach. So he calls his disciples to himself. And we pick up in verse 43. Remember how the last section started? He said, beware. This time he says, truly. Truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. That lady? The one walking away, that poor widow, she put in more than everyone else? 
Jesus explains. See, they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Remember the contrast? The scribes who walked around in their long robes, who wanted to be seen and praised by others, who took the best seats, and when given the opportunity, took advantage of the week for their own service. And here's a widow who Jesus commends. God's economy is different than ours. God weighs things differently than we do. We're inclined to look at outward appearances and dollar amounts. But Jesus looks at the heart. By any standard, the offering she gave wasn't much. It would not have made any difference in the temple's budget. But Jesus commends it, not because of the amount, but because of the sacrifice it represented. Whether we're talking about money, or offerings of time, or offerings of talent, man, I'm so glad God doesn't judge us based on the quality of our talent, or what we accomplish in the time, necessarily, but on the heart in which it's given. In this case, she gave very little, but it cost her a lot. See, all the others contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. And I think I should, I, I felt the need to give a couple of disclaimers. One, Jesus doesn't necessarily tell us that all those others gave insincere gifts, right? I suspect that many of the people coming in that week came with pure hearts, desiring to please God. And God had blessed them and they gave back to him out of their abundance. And I don't think he's contrasting the widow with those folks necessarily. But what he's acknowledging is the level of sacrifice that she made. She gave all she had to live on, which brings me to the second disclaimer. I don't think this passage is calling us to drain our bank accounts and give it all to the church. This isn't a call to poverty necessarily. It's not a condemnation of emergency funds. But I do think Jesus uses her example to push us and to stretch us, not only financially, but primarily spiritually. The scribes were greedy and proud, but this is a woman who seemingly is filled with humility and willing to give everything she has. The calling for you is the same. And I'm not talking about money, necessarily. Jesus calls all those who follow him to give all of us. And this is a theme we've traced throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. Go back to chapter 1. Remember Jesus walking along that beach in Galilee? And he saw guys out on their boats, lifetime fishermen, and he said, drop it all. Follow me. And we said a year and a half ago when we were in Mark chapter 1, that was a call to discipleship. And we could trace that theme all the way through the gospel of Mark. Chapter 8 says it most clearly. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
to lose his soul. This is the call of the Christian life, a call to sacrifice and to service. Do you see how different it is from what we saw with the so-called religious leaders? Jesus said they will receive condemnation. But in the second account, we see commendation. This is the kind of heart that pleases God, a heart that's willing to give it all. And as we see this example, I told you earlier, let's not just look at the scribes, let's not just look at the widow, but friends, would you look at your own heart? Do you desire to please God? Do you desire to serve him? Do you desire to follow him? If the answer is yes, then we have some evaluation to do. You could just think about your last week. And consider how you spent your time. Devoted to others or devoted primarily to yourself? I'm not going to answer out loud for myself. And I won't ask you to either. But would you think about it? How about your skills and abilities? Are they devoted wholly to your vocation or your hobbies? Or do you use the skills and abilities that God has given you to serve others? Serve the church. And yes, there is the question of money. How generous are you? How faithful are you to help those around you in need? How faithful are you to contribute to the work of God? If you want to know what God expects of us, I don't, this passage, I think the big idea is is pride and humility, self-centeredness and sacrifice. We have these other themes, the, the care for the needy, this idea of giving. If you want to read more about giving, you could read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I'll summarize it for you. Jesus doesn't tell us how much to give, what percentage even to give, but the call there is to give generously, to give sacrificially, and to give joyfully, because God loves a cheerful giver. I hope you'll take time this week to evaluate your heart. You could pull up your calendar and look at your time and how it's spent, perhaps, if you track your time on a calendar. You could pull up your bank account and track that. You could ask those around you. Maybe they have some insight. Are you more like the scribes, proud and self-seeking, or more like the widow, humble and willing to give all? Now let's stop here, because we could end here, and you wish I would, and we could leave, and this would be all about what we must do. But church, can I remind you, this, this isn't a matter of outward, it is a matter of the heart. And perhaps the greatest deficiency of the scribes was this, that they did not have a proper view of God. Because when we have a proper view of God, the only way we can respond is in humility and in love and in service. But when we take our eyes off God and turn them on ourselves, but we turn into scribes. Scribes claim to know God, but their hearts were far from him. If you're thinking, okay, I I want to do better with my time and with my money and with my skills and abilities, then, then make a plan for those things, but make this your first plan. Draw near to God. 
See him for who he is and his majesty and his glory and see who you are in your sin and recognize what he has done for you. If we see that, man, really everything else should fall into place. The scribes thought too much of themselves and too little of God. If you think of God rightly and of yourself rightly, the only right response will be a life of service to him. And it should blow us away that the God of all majesty and glory is our primary example of what it means to give all. Jesus had this conversation. He gave this warning and this commendation middle of the week. On Friday, he would hang on a cross and give his life for your sins and for mine, for all who will repent and believe. Paul says it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, underline that your, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We're not talking about money here, by the way. To be granted eternal life an entrance into the presence of God. Let us not forget that Jesus gave his all so that all those who repent and believe can be saved. And maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that you've never done that. That you stand before God guilty and if you've never repented, if you've never accepted the work of Christ on your behalf, then You are guilty before him. But Jesus came and we're told that all who believe in him will be saved. And we've talked a lot this morning about what we should do. But don't don't mishear me. You don't earn your salvation based on what you do. Salvation is a gift received by faith. And for those who receive it, we've been saved unto good works. So our lives should be lived in gratitude and worship. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever. And always. Amen. Amen.